everyone, and welcome to the Plant Industry News Podcast, co-hosted by me, Shelby Ostriker, Holly Hughes, and Olivia Doyle, with the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services Division of Plant Industry. As a regulatory agency of the Florida Department of Agriculture and Consumer Services, the Division of Plant Industry works to detect, intercept, and control plant and honeybee pests that threaten Florida's native and commercially grown plants and agricultural resources. Thanks for joining us. On today's episode, we'll hear from Dr. Trevor Smith from the Director's Desk and Carmen Frasica, one of DPI's apiary inspectors who also serves as a supervisor. It's not something that you can just, you know, get bees put in your backyard and six months later, later collect honey. It, just, it doesn't work like that anymore. Then stay tuned for news and announcements in the Division Digest. From the Director's Desk with Trevor Smith. All right, well, welcome back. This is Trevor Smith from the Director's Office. Today I wanted to talk about a little bit that's happened in the last few weeks and one of those things was our division strategic planning meeting. And when I took over as director four years ago, I had a lot of uh, kind of negative associations with strategic planning and strategic planning meetings because in the past, every time I've been a part of one of those, I think everybody does a great job of identifying strengths and weaknesses and writing them down on paper and then that paper goes into a file folder somewhere and nobody ever sees it again. The key to strategic planning is follow-up. You have to identify those things, then you have to get back together again, figure out what kind of progress you've made, what kind of um, you know, difficulties have you had implementing some of those changes, and it's supposed to be something that happens continuously. And one of the other great things about strategic planning is you end up with a plan at the end of all this where you've got four or five strategic goals, and then some bullet points on how you're going to get there. But typically, by the time you get that plan, you can just throw it in the garbage because everything's changed again. So a lot of the value is in the journey. It's talking about the issues we have, the strengths, the weaknesses, and so forth. So this is something we've been doing for the last four years. We'll have one time a year, the senior leadership goes away, for a couple of days, it's just so much more productive when you get out of the office sometimes. And we will talk about these kind of things. And then six months later, you have to follow up and you gotta go back through all of those things that you talked about and see what kind of progress you've made. So we were down in Brooksville at the uh, Division of Forestry, I still call them the Division of Forestry, the Florida Forest Service uh, has a training facility down there and they've got uh, uh, places you can stay, uh, they've got uh, rec rooms, they've got food, they feed you, it's great. It's a great situation to get away, but everything's taken care of. So you can just go there and stay and get a lot done. So that was a really productive meeting. That's something that we're gonna eventually have on our webpage. And I think from, from here, the real push needs to be to get the strategic plan out to everybody in the division. You know, we're a division of almost 600 people everybody has a valuable perspective on this. So we're just trying to set the stage um, with the director's office and leadership, but we want buy-in from everybody. So this is something that we're gonna really work to get out to the division, have available to the division, 
and then get feedback so that we can incorporate it into the future. So just, just to kind of give you an idea of what we're talking about, a strategic plan can be something or a goal that we have is uh, developing a com comprehensive staff development program. So that's something where we have more training for our staff. We're gonna have a calendar of training events so you can go on and see what's available and decide way in advance, how do you wanna develop yourself? And, and that doesn't mean in your role, that means you could look at ways to move somewhere else in the division, valuable skills for other opportunities, maybe not with the division, but we want it to be available to everybody. And we want it to be comprehensive. It's not just putting you into a certain pathway. Uh, so that's kind of an example and then the hard part, of course, is then making that happen, staying on it and monitoring it and making sure it's doing what, what it needs to do. So that's just an example. In addition, we've got a lot going on with our Citrus Budwood Registration Bureau right now. In fact, one thing that just happened is those of you that have been to the Winter Haven office, there used to be two big buildings there, the Copperweight Building and the Shaw Building. Now there is only the Cofferwaith building. There is a big hole where the Shaw building used to be. And the reason for that is we did have to demolish that building. We, last year we actually had funding to go in and renovate that building. But once we went in and had the engineers go in and look at it, they basically said, this is not renovation. You just need to start over. You need to push this building down and, and build something else. So, that's what we had to do and within i think it was maybe three weeks ago it only took a few days and the demolition crew came in and took down that entire building they've already got it graded irrigation in there and sods going in this week so it's you're not even to know there was a building there soon now the reason we did that is we are still planning on building a new building but it's going to be six months to a year so we figured we might as well put a nice lawn over there uh, until we actually build. So it's a very different view when you pull up to that building now in Winter Haven. You can actually see the Arboretum out back where it used to be blocked by the Shaw Building. Something else is going on in Budwood. Industry actually approached us about, I wanna say maybe three years back, and one of the biggest problems the citrus industry is having right now is, in addition to disease issues, is seeds. There are not a lot of seed sources out there. And for those of you that aren't familiar with citrus, the reason is citrus is typically propagated from plant cuttings. So there are some varieties of citrus out there. There are no seeds. There was one mother plant a hundred years ago that everybody cut budwood from and it's gone. And now there's no seed uh, to associate with that. Uh, but there are other varieties that it, there are seeds available, but it's very rare. So they came to us and said, is this something DPI could help us with? So we actually designated an area out at our Chiefland Budwood facility, 10 acres, where we're gonna plant a seed source. So we got with industry, talked about what varieties, because keep in mind, this is a long-term project. Whatever you plant in there, you're not getting seed for three or four years. You're not getting a lot of seed for five, six, seven years. So whatever you plant, it better be something people want in seven years. So we really got a lot of buy-in from our citrus growers just to determine which ones have that staying power. Let's not necessarily go with the flavor of the month here. What is something you know for a fact you're gonna need in the future? And we just finished grading that, setting that up. 
uh, we've got irrigation, put the well in, we've got irrigation, and we're going to be planting out there in the next month. So that's going to be a huge help uh, to industry. And the nice thing about that facility out there is it's on a forestry site, and they just have a lot of room. And they've been very generous with the space and, um, and allowed us to set this up out there. We're also going to be expanding the greenhouse in Chiefland. And the reason for that is the irony of citrus budwood is that our overall citrus acreage has been going down for the last few years. Now we're seeing a bump, it's coming back up, which is great. But the more it goes down, it's almost counterintuitive, the more budwood they need. And the reason for that is they're, they're having to replant more because they're losing more trees, but also because these new varieties are coming out all the time. Some are more cold tolerant. Some of them may be a little more tolerant of greening. Uh, some of them just might taste better or look better. And we're getting more and more of these from the breeders. And for those of you that don't know a lot about citrus budwood, every one of those varieties has to go through our program. The researcher or the breeder or just a grower that wants to bring in a new variety from, it could be from Israel, it could be from Australia, or it could just be down the street has to go through our citrus budwood registration program for cleanup. When we provide budwood to our citrus nursery industry, it has to be clean of disease. And we talked a little bit a few minutes ago about how a lot of citrus just comes from cuttings from a tree. Well, you can imagine if you have a tree with a virus and every single cutting from that tree goes out to industry and isn't cleaned up, every single tree has that virus then more people will cut off of that tree and more people, it's just, it's a huge problem. And that's why we have this budwood program. It's the foundation of Florida's uh, citrus industry. So we've just got a lot of development with new varieties going on right now. So we'll get between 50, 60, 70 new varieties every year. We have to clean them up and then we have to have at least one tree planted in Chiefland inside of our foundation block because we have to be able to cut budwood from it. So there has to be at least one tree. So you can imagine if every year we're getting 50, 60, 70 new varieties, every one of them has to be planted. And in some cases, if it's something that a lot of people need, we need more than one tree because that's a lot of stress on one tree to keep cutting budwood from the same tree. So we might need 10 trees if we're cutting a lot of budwood. So uh, we're actually expanding that facility for not only the seed production, but we're also gonna expand it for producing one other thing I wanted to touch on today is um, it's on my mind right now because I just got out of our newest uh, new employee orientation group that came through DPI. And something we implemented, I think it was only four or five months ago, we've been talking about it for years, is we do a really good job with new employee orientation up in Tallahassee. Everybody goes up there for three or four days. You learn all about the department. You get to tour some of the divisions up there but then we didn't have a DPI component for our staff when they came back, and we do now. So after our employees finish up in Tallahassee, they come back to Gainesville, they sit down with myself, uh, the director's office, we talk about uh, the history of DPI, give a presentation on the bureaus, how many bureaus they are, where they are, um, what they do, and just get to know each other a little bit. Then they get to tour the facility here, see the collection, you know, the big museum that everybody always talks about that some of our staff they might never get to see it because they're down in Miami or they're in Pensacola they at least get to see it uh, when they're here for new employee orientation and I think it's just been a huge success 
So that's, I think, another really good thing that we've been able to develop by having a training coordinator really, really focused on nothing but training and being able to, um, some of these things we've been talking about for years, and we've heard from our staff that they want training, training, training. It just keeps coming back. Everybody wants training, which is great. It just shows how engaged everybody is. But that's also a tough one when we've got a job to do and everybody's out there, especially DPI, I mean, just incredibly busy. Um, it's tough to fit it in, but it's important. We feel it's important, and, uh, and I think it's starting to pay dividends now. So that's really all I've got for this month. So I look forward to talking to everybody again next month, and talk to you later. When you travel by land, sea, or air, ask, can I bring it, and declare agricultural items. With your help, we can safeguard natural resources and protect the food supply from invasive pests and disease. Whatever your destination, enjoy the journey, and remember, don't pack a pest. Welcome everyone. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Plant Industry News. We're happy to have Shelby here as my co-host. And we're also happy to welcome Carmen, an apiary inspector. We are in the field today. We have been shadowing Carmen and what he does uh, for DPI in Dade City, which is where he's based out of. So Carmen, welcome. Tell us a little bit about Thank yourself. You. Um, I am an apiary inspection supervisor for Region 2. Uh, that pretty much covers from Ocala, east and west, all the way down to the Florida Keys. Wow. Uh, we go out and we inspect beehives and regulate the honeybee industry in the state of Florida. Very good. And how long have you been with the division? Uh, I've been with the division for four years. Okay. Uh, I started out as a career service inspector uh, covering the Tampa Bay area and then got promoted in 2017 to supervisor. Very good. Well, we're really happy to have you with us today. Yeah. So, first question, because we are in Dade City, what is it like working out of a different office than where the headquarters are in Gainesville? Um, it's not really difficult. We have a, a great team. Uh, we communicate very well with each other. Uh, the only thing that the downfall to it is traveling. If I have to travel to Gainesville, it's about two hours north. So... Uh, but besides that, uh, our team is put together really well and we communicate with each other very well. And are all of the people that you supervise here, um, like locally based or? No, we have, uh, five, I, I, um, supervise five inspectors. One is based out of, uh, Tavares office. Uh, another one is in Winter Haven, Homestead, LaBelle, and Clearwater. Okay. So they're all over the all over state. state. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, so what counties do you cover specifically? Uh, specifically, um, I use, as a district inspector, I used to cover Hernando, Pasco, Hillsborough, Pinellas, and Manatee. Um, I did help out uh, when the area was vacant with Polk, Hardy, DeSoto, Highlands, and Sarasota as well. Uh, but since we have hired on uh, two individuals, um, my area has kind of shrunk down to let me do my supervisor duties more than the inspection duties. So. Generally, I try to stay in the Tampa Bay area, um, but as for the counties, it's pretty much from Ocala South. That's, that's where I go. Such a huge territory, yeah. so 
how are you able to keep in contact with those inspectors that you supervise being that it is such a, a huge territory and you guys all work kind of remotely? Um, well, I mean, text messaging, emails, phone calls. Um, I try to communicate with them as much as I can. Uh, normally check in with them every couple of days to see how things are going. Um, but yeah, definitely the phone, yeah, the phone helps yeah. out a lot. Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned earlier today too, like FaceTiming um, was a good way for you guys to communicate too. Yeah. Generally, I mean, with, with all the technology that we have, especially with the, the iPhones, uh, we can FaceTime each other and look at each other's computers and do training that way as well. It makes things a lot easier. So what does a typical day look like for you? Um, depending on the time of year, uh, a typical day starts out with me opening up my emails and going through them, uh, getting my inspection paperwork printed out and ready to go out into the field. Um, and then coming back to the office, doing my paperwork and then, and pretty much going home. But that's just on the inspection level as for being a supervisor. Um, I'll say that I, I tend to put out a lot of, uh, Force fires, I call them, but more issues than anything. So if we deal with complaint calls, those are normal. Those are normally the number one priority that we have, um, and I normally have to respond to those. So during the winter months, it's not really as bad as spring and summer and fall, but uh, it's pretty much just keeping tabs on everybody and uh, you know doing my part of the job, I guess. Yeah. So what what is your peak season? Would you say for your for your job for the for the beekeeping world um are the the peak season um i mean depending on who you talk to and what beekeepers you talk to it depends on what their goals are but i'll say our busiest time of year is probably it starts uh middle of november um a lot of the commercial beekeepers from all over the country uh tend to migrate their bees down to florida uh just because we have a easier climate than up north and then they get them ready to be shipped out to california for almonds um, so we, what we have to do is we have to, uh, schedule and inspect those, those bees prior to leaving the state of Florida to go to almonds. So I would say it starts in November and ends mid, now it starts November, ends February. Okay. Can you tell us a little bit more about that, like almond season <laughs> and how that works? Uh, so California in the Central Valley is pretty much known for its almond production, um, they generally need about 2.5 million colonies shipped in every single year to pollinate the almonds. Uh, we send out, um, on average, I'm going to say about 60 to 70,000 hives from Florida to almonds and Florida, uh, from Florida to California. And, uh, we have to inspect them for ants, fire ants specifically. Uh, when we do the inspection, we then issue them a red, um, red fire ant inspection certificate. So you mentioned today while we were riding with you that you are also a beekeeper yourself in your in your personal time. So yes. tell us a bit about that kind of operation while you're simultaneously a regulator for that and then kind of how you got started into this industry. Um, I got started, I'm originally from Buffalo, New York. Uh, we moved down here in 2001 and uh, in Brooksville. And we live next to an orange grove, it's no longer there, but um, my friends and I would actually ride our four-wheelers through the orange groves. And one day, there was these white boxes that were there and we kind of came out of the woods and ran into these boxes and uh, knocked a few of them over and got stung up pretty bad and went home. 
And uh, then we, uh, police found out, they found me, and uh, instead of pressing charges for vandalism or anything like that, the beekeeper said, you know, um, I want him to help clean up. So that's kind of what got me into it. Uh, that was when I was 14 years old. Um, and it wasn't like I got into it full time there because my mom thought I was crazy and didn't want me to keep bees on our property. So every year he would come back to the, that orange grove and I would help him for you know a month while I was there getting um, orange blossom honey. Mm. And that's what kind of got me into it. Um, uh, you know, back then, ever since I went to school, I've always dabbled with it, um, you know, being interested in insects and snakes and spiders and everything like that. Uh, I finally got, you know, enough courage maybe about seven years ago to invest in my own little beekeeping operation. And that's when it started out with two hives in my backyard. Um, and it has grown to right now me having around 30 hives that I do a little bit of local pollination, but uh, it's it's mainly for honey production and things like that as well. That's cool. Yeah. Um, it's funny where our passions can come from, for oh, sure. Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> yeah. What are some unique things people might not know about the apiary industry in Florida? Um, some unique things are uh, we actually monitor all the ports around the state of Florida. Um, we'll go around to them uh, on a 21-day cycle. We'll bait uh, the hives with a pheromone-based lure, and it'll draw the bees into the trap. Once the bees are in the trap, we actually take samples, send them up to Gainesville to test their DNA to see if they're possibly Africanized. Um, another thing that is interesting is that Florida is uh, a year-round beekeeping state, so where other parts of the country have to shut down in the winter, we are actually getting ready to uh, get the bees out to California. Um, also, uh, we actually, uh, Florida pr produces a variety of different honeys. Uh, orange blossom, tupelo, gallberry, palmetto, wildflower. Um, and yeah, so we're, we're actually, I think, the third largest honey producing state in the, in the country. Wow. So. What, um, what's your favorite type of honey? My favorite type of honey is a uh, palmetto. Why? What's the flavor profile of that? Um, it's, it's got like a, a little bit of a deeper flavor to it. Uh, it's, it's not as sweet, um, of a honey, but it, it just has a nice bold taste to it. So this leads me to believe that, uh, Florida's apiary industry is fairly large compared to other states. Is that correct? Uh, yeah, I would say so. Um, Florida has uh, the largest apiary industry in the United States. Um, when it comes to our apiary inspection program, I know other states do have apiary inspection programs, but they don't have the amount of inspectors that we do. Some states only have one inspector for the entire state or two. Uh, we have 12. So uh, we try to accommodate all the beekeepers that are coming in from the other states the, the best that we can uh, with the small team that we have. Right. Uh, California is probably the largest when it comes to actual hives. Um, every year they need about two, two and a half million shipped out for almonds. Wow. So um, I know Florida itself has around 700,000 colonies that are registered within the state and that's distributed through about 5,000 beekeepers that are registered. Are honeybees endangered? Uh, honeybees are not endangered. Um, I know there's been some things going on 
uh, in, the, in social media and things like that. But uh, it's actually a few different um, species of bees that are in danger. I know one of them is actually native to Hawaii. And the rusty patch bumblebee has also been added to the endangered species list. But uh, European honeybees themselves have not been added to the endangered species list. Uh, but they're not, um, they're not doing the best. I mean, there are things that um, do hurt the honeybees overall health. Uh, one of them being the varroa mite. It's a, it's a parasitic mite that feeds off the fat bodies of the honeybee. Um, and this actually leaves an open wound in, in their uh, exoskeletons, so it allows viruses and bacteria to actually enter, and it, it'll weaken the bee's immune system, and over time, eventually kill the, uh, kill off the colony. So is there anything the public could do or non-beekeeper people could do to kind of help promote pollination or bee colony survival? Definitely. Um, there's, a, there's a lot of things that they can do. Uh, when it comes to specific like pollinators, like honeybees and butterflies and things like that, uh, you know, planting Florida native plants is the best thing. It's adapt adapted to our, our climate, so you don't have to water them as much. Um, also, they have uh, different like bee houses out there. They have solitary bee houses that are made out of bamboo. Um, that would definitely help the solitary bees. Um, and uh, just just providing uh, you know different Florida wildlife or wildflowers to the to the state. So, f just for our listeners' knowledge, <laughs> how many times have you been stung? Um, uh, too many to count. Uh, I got stung once today when we were out. Uh, that's normally a good day for me. A good day is no stings, but. Um, you know, I've been stung once or twice. Normally I get stung once or twice on any inspection in the hands, and that's probably my fault because I'll squish a bee with my finger and I'll end up getting stung. But on a bad day, it can go upwards to about 50 stings. So. Oof, that's a lot. But it is true that when they sting, they die. Yes, it is. Mm. Honeybees do, yeah. So what happens is, is that they actually have a barb at the end of their stinger, so when it enters your skin, it gets kind of like, it's like a fishing hook, uh -huh. and it gets stuck as they pull it out, and it actually tears out with the venom sac that's inside their abdomen mm. and actually tears tears off. But yes, the, the honeybee will die. Oh. Yeah, Shelby and I got stung today. Our little initiation into the apiary industry. Yeah, we're honorary apiary inspectors that's now. That's right, mm -hmm. yeah, exactly. So um, I know that Florida participates in the National Honeybee Survey. Um, can you can you share with us what that is, what it does, and maybe who else participates in it? Yeah. Um, so it's, uh, I think it's through the University of Maryland, or at least that's where we send our kits to. Uh, they send out these sample kits to all the apiary inspection programs that are participating in this around the country. And what we do is we set up inspections with beekeepers that we've previously done in the past to kind of get uh, data, you know, over the past several years. And we'll go out and we'll take samples of live bees, um, and we'll put some in alcohol. We'll ship live bees up to Maryland so they can put them into a freezer and freeze them and do testing on them later. But we also take samples of the wax and pollen to see if there's any pesticides or herbicides, insecticides that are found within it. Um, and we save those as well. Um, so the National Honeybee Survey, I generally, I think Florida gets about 25 kits. So we mm -hmm. disperse them throughout the state to each inspector. Uh, I know I personally had four to do this year. Uh, and like I said, we try to generally, you know, hit the four corners of our district just so we can get a broader uh, idea of, you know, what's in those specific areas. Yeah. 
So what advice would you have for someone who's looking into break into the apiary beekeeping industry? Uh, the first thing I would tell them to do is to try to contact uh, their local beekeeping association. I know the Florida State Beekeepers uh, Association page has a list of all the associations throughout the state. Um, but definitely go to your local clubs. They generally have club hives that you can go out and actually work honeybees before investing money into it to see if it's something you really want to do. Oh, that's um, neat. It's not it's not a cheap hobby to get into, mm-hmm. but at least people can go out and, you know, if they get stung or, um, you know, they have an allergic reaction or if anything happens where they don't like it, at least they didn't waste the money to, to get into this hobby. So uh, definitely go to your local clubs, talk to other beekeepers, find a mentor. Um, it's not something that you can just, you know, get bees put in your backyard and six months later, later collect honey. It, just, it doesn't work like that anymore. So we're constantly working with them. Every, you know, 7 to 14 days, we try to inspect our bees, and you just have to learn and continue to uh, want to learn about honeybees because it's just nonstop. So definitely go to your local clubs or Florida State Beekeepers Association. Well, thank you, Carmen, so much for joining us today. I know that I have especially learned a lot about the apiary industry and honeybees in general, both in this conversation and all throughout the day as we were, you know, riding around and everything. So thank you so much for joining us. And thank you everyone to tuning in. Um, So if if you are listening and you want to learn more, we did follow Carmen around today. And uh, if you want to read about that, we've written a blog about him and his day in the life, if you will, as an apiary inspector. So go check that out on our blog. It's um, dpi.wordpress.com. Yep, so go check that out, and thank you again, Carmen, for for taking the time. Hey guys, Holly here, the social media coordinator for the Division of Plant Industry. Do you know the true difference between a fruit and vegetable? The answer might not be as obvious as you think. Check out the DPI blog post, Busting Some Myths on the Foods We Eat. Blog posts cover a variety of topics and are published weekly at fdaxdpi.wordpress.com. This is the Division Digest. We would like to welcome Mr. David J. Joseph to the DPI team as maintenance superintendent with the Office of the Director. David has worked for 10 years with the Florida Fish and Wildlife Conservation as a property analyst handling asset management, risk management, and managing facilities around the state. David is familiar with overseeing contracts for state facilities and joins us as a Florida Certified Contract Manager. David brings a wealth of knowledge and talent, and we're excited to welcome him to the division. David will oversee our headquarters facility for preventative maintenance, construction projects, as well as safety and code compliance inspections. We look forward to working with you. We'd also like to announce that Catherine Kate Fairbanks has been appointed to the position of Assistant Bureau Chief of Methods Development and Biological Control. She has been employed by DPI for over 12 years and has held various positions working on a wide range of projects from biological control programs in the Methods Bureau to field surveys and identifications under the Cooperative Agricultural Pest Survey Program. 
Kate was previously a biological scientist in the entomology section of the Diagnostics Bureau, where she assisted with hemiptera identifications and managed databases. Kate, we wish you the best of luck in this new role. Lastly, we'd like to announce Jimmy Salazar, one of our maintenance mechanics for 13 years, retired this month. Jimmy, thank you for your service and dedication to the Division of Plant Industry. We will miss seeing you around the building with a smile and friendly conversation. We wish you the best in this new chapter of your life. Thanks for tuning in to Plant Industry News. We appreciate our special guests for keeping us informed and updated. Follow us on social media at FDAXDPI. Be sure to subscribe and rate us wherever you listen to podcasts. If you have any questions, suggestions, or announcements you think should be included, email us at dpi-blog at freshfromflorida.com. This podcast was produced in part by Olivia Doyle, Holly Hughes, and Shelby Ostriker. Don't bug us. We'll have another episode next month.